Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. The Science of Sport podcast with sports editor Mike Finch and sports scientist Professor Ross Tucker. So welcome to another episode of the Science of Sport podcast. And uh, for those of you that are supporting us and uh, being part of our Patreon community, you will have seen in the last couple of weeks that we have started a discourse channel. And uh, I don't think we had any idea about how enthusiastically uh, you, our listeners and our Patreon supporters have embraced the discourse channel because it is uh, suddenly... The numbers have gone up. We had a look at some of the admin um, stats that we can see about the number of hours people have spent on discourse since we started it. Quite a few, few of you, I'm not sure that you're eating or uh, or have a balanced life because you seem to be spending a lot of time on our discourse channel. But thank but you don't, for all don't of you. listen to Mike. Spend more time Spend there. More don't, time. don't don't criticize <laughs> the people who are embracing the best sports science platform in the world. Tell them they should spend more on absolutely eat we, while you read. We're, we're interested in the <laughs> overall health of our listeners uh, as much as we are interested in the stats on our discourse channel. Um, so yes, um, I'm not putting you off because it has been an, an amazing place. And I've been on deadline for the last two weeks, so I haven't had a chance to really get involved in some of the discussions on discourse. But I I got on there this morning, and uh, there's about five or six topics which I want to comment on. I've made one comment so far. Um, now the man is put together a lot of the stuff that we're talking about on Discourse, joins us again uh, all the way from Wales, uh, Gareth Davies, um, not the Gareth Davies as in the rugby Gareth Davies, but the more famous one um, as part of our science of sport uh, community. And uh, Gareth, I mean, just your overall impressions about the way that um, the Discourse channel has gone since we launched it, what, 10 days ago now? Yeah, it's, well, it's just over a week. It's, yeah, it's been a bit nuts, really. I mean, because the uptake was uh, was instant. In fact, it, it sort of caught me by surprise because I was out in the fields running with the dog and I had this little notification say that the, the latest Patreon newsletter was released by Ross. And I was like, oh, that means that everybody's got the link to discourse now. And I'm out in the fields and I look at the dog and I said, you know what this means? And he's looking at me saying like, <laughs> oh, does it mean I get a treat? Like, no, no. <laughs> it, it, means, it means that we've got to get home, mate. So we sort of cut the run short and got home. Um, and it was great because everybody was already logging in. There were already 20 odd people in there. Um, and I think I know now why NASA scientists, you know, when the, the rocket goes off the launch pad and they all cheer, I think that's, that's not just elation. I think that's relief that it didn't explode because it, <laughs> you can plan all these things in advance, but only when people actually get involved, the, do you realize that it's actually working. So to see anybody in there and then posting was great. And the engagement's been fantastic. Uh, we've got so many, so many engaged people who are posting from on such a wide range of topics. And I was just, I was just saying to you before we started recording, um, it's almost like a split between the the two sides of the podcast, where you've got your news stories, your caught my eye section, and then you've got your deep dives into the science side of things. Um, 
and so we've got these uh, scientists who are, who are sharing great research actually on the on the discourse, um, and then we've got athletes who are picking up on that who are doing it for themselves. And then we're looking at sport on a wider term when it gets to the professional side. So it's going, it's running the gamut right across uh, what we hoped it would do really. Hmm. Hmm. Yeah. I mean, let's just take a step back for those of you that are listening potentially to the first time to our podcast and trying to figure out how you get into discourse. It's quite simple. You actually just go to our Patreon page, which is uh, P-A-T-R-E-O-N, and you become a patron on Patreon. And if you look at the, uh, look up the Science of Sport podcast on Patreon, you'll be able to see a donation button, and there's three different levels that you can join us at. And uh, when you sign up and uh, donate a very small amount of money per month, you're getting get free access to the Discourse channel, and you actually sign in with your Patreon details into the Discourse channel. So it's really simple to do. There's been a couple of people that have uh, kind of not got it right, but uh, we've sorted them out pretty quickly, and it's been pretty seamless. And Russ, hmm. I mean, you've been on there since we started it, um, and, and you've been involved in many of the discussions on there. I mean, this could potentially become something where it becomes a real resource for people in this field. It already is. Like mm. even in the first 10 days, we've had posts. If you want to make your own sports drink, there's a there's a page on Discourse where a handful of people will tell you exactly how to mix it up, how to flavor it, how to preserve it, what to avoid, what not to do, what to do. There's a page on there that will describe the results that a couple of people have done testing their super carbon shoes. Owen Zarelli posted a really nice piece on how he'd gone into the lab and I think tested was it three or four shoes and he shows exactly what the results were. Kevin responded with some data from somewhere else. This triggered an idea, which I'll share with you shortly, but you'll see like tremendous detail there. I, when, we, when we launched it like 10 days ago or two weeks back, we said that we wanted this to become the resource for sports science conversations in the world. And I mean, of course I'm biased. It's it's our child, but we think it's the most beautiful child in the world. We think I think it's getting there. Like and it will be. There's over a hundred people now. You can imagine by the time we have two, three hundred people, mm. there won't be a topic that you can think about that someone wouldn't have explored on that discourse channel. And the the thing that I'm most pleased about is the quality of the posts. Um we've got people who are scientists, people who are studying to become sports scientists. We've got coaches. We've got maybe the most important of all is the end user. Gareth has created a race reports page where people can go and post the equipment they use, the training they did, the nutrition strategy they followed in races. So you can learn from other people's experiences. And that, that community, when they're all together, they'll share information and it becomes not necessarily self-correcting because that presumes that there's one way to be. And, and a lot of the stuff, it's not, right? There's there's not one nutrition strategy like you would have heard in our latest podcast with Louise Burke. There's not one best shoe. There's a best shoe maybe for you in a certain situation. But the the forum and the community will share all that insight. And, and if people, I'm pretty confident that if people do something wild or say something wild and outrageously wrong, the community will correct them. It's, yeah. a, it's going to become a self-correcting, self-optimizing organism <laughs> online. And if you spend some time there, you will learn sports science. Yeah. 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 No, I'm learning a lot just from doing it. Yeah, I was just about to say, we've, uh, you were talking about the numbers there. We're on 199 at the minute. So if yeah. anybody wants to join and just make it up to 200, that's great. Because it helps, helps my OCD, that one. Yes, go on. Be our 200th member on our uh, Discourse channel. So, yes. <laughs> Anyway, so those of you who are listening to our podcast and have been listening for a number of years and think, oh, maybe I should 
support you guys on Patreon. I mean, it's it's certainly um, an opportunity for, to get even more in-depth into the various topics that we talk about. And uh, as you'll heard from Ross and both Gareth, there's a lot of people who are contributing very meaningfully outside of Ross and Gareth um, who are very involved in that space. So uh, check it out. Yes, Ross. Sorry, very quickly, we'll put the patron link in the show notes as well, yeah. so you don't have to go search for it. But the, the thing, because we're going to move on to some specific subjects, but the, the idea that I wanted to float, and I'm actually floating it via Mike and Gareth for the first time now as well, so it's happening live, is a lot of scientific journals will do something they call like a rapid report, where instead of writing a 3,000-word scientific article, or 5,000 sometimes, you can write something quite short and concise and in in very sort of quick time, the reader can skim it and find something. I think it would be really cool if the discourse has a channel, or not a channel, a category for rapid, relevant reviews. That's what we'll call it or something like that. And then I want to invite, because I got this idea from looking at Owen and Kevin's posts, and there have been a few others, invite like a standardized structure, the background, the methods, the results, and your conclusions. And if you are listening to this as a scientist, whether you're a student or a qualified scientist, you can submit with a heading, you know, are you testing shoes? Are you testing a new gel? Are you testing equipment? Whatever it is. Mm -hmm. and, you, and, and then discourse actually has a scientific channel, a scientific mm -hmm. category. I think it'll be amazing. And I'm quite confident it'll become, it'll become more engaging and more relevant and more readable than most scientific journals. It'll be more credible than a lot of them. And okay, it's not going to be peer reviewed, but it's going to be reviewed by your peers. You know, yeah, and those other members. Say, if you're going to hit us with this idea in, in the middle of the podcast, I'm going to ask you another question. How do we ensure that those reports that our people are submitting have the credibility and have had due rigor to make sure that there is well, you, credibility around them? Well, you can't, but it is public. Every, every discussion about your rapid report is public. Because mm. if you're Owen or Kevin or whatever, and you're going to put that up, Someone's going to say, but well, hang on, did you control for the order in which you tested the yeah. shoes? Did you, why did you only run for three minutes? You might have done six minutes. How do we know that that's long enough for three? Uh, which gas analyzer did you use? Did you make the Blumenfeld error of overmeasuring the VO2? Whatever it is, you know, like so. So, of course, some of it will already be published stuff. Some of you listening to this are sports scientists and you're publishing in journals already. By all means, take your paper that's published and translate it so that it's read by more people than the 0.001% academics who read these journals. Put it out there and give it some air. So then, of course, you've got that. But, but again, the, the, the community will question you and ask you and probe. And if you then read the discussion, I think it's going to be quite a useful teaching tool because I'll review them and I'll say, hang on, I noticed that you've done it like this, but why did you test that condition and not that one? And, and there's a reason for it. You defend it. Yep. So it's a public... You put something up and then you stand behind it, willing to defend it as people ask you. And I know the community will be constructive. It'll be constructive engagement. No one's going to tear it down. It's not going to be a petty review like you'd get it like the British Journal of Sports Medicine or something. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. Okay. Yeah, I just like I'd just like to say, yeah, that, that that's really interesting, not just from the academic side of things, from the from the sports scientist side of things, but from from say for example, my side of things where I'm no sports scientist, but I enjoy reading about it and having it explained um perhaps down to layman's terms by other people in the forum is really helpful so it's for everybody i think it, it, it's not just that nitty-gritty science side of it mm, that's what i want to do but i want to i want to make it in a format that is scientific you know so that's why you you write it in a certain structure and you must show at least two figures show us your results show us the graph of 
oxygen consumption or show us the time on what you know, so, so look I'm not saying that everyone must go and publish their data from their weekly mountain bike ride <laughs> and there must be it must be a controlled hypothesis mm. that you're examining and testing and then put it in front of the patron members and let them ask and learn from you and correct and you'll learn from them too i think it's cool we'll yeah. see how it goes look if it fails spectacularly and we start getting rubbish we'll just close it off yeah yeah i mean this is a i guess this is kind of one of those things where you have to just start it and see yeah exactly it goes, but i'll tell you like something i mean this morning i've been fighting battles with one of the journals because the peer review process is a complete mess we got this one journal from the well this review british medical journal that opened the sports and exercise one i mean it's a complete shambles comical Mm. Like it's a, a journal should be embarrassed by it, and if if this discourse channel can even be slightly better than that, it'll be great. It's not going to be worse, that's for sure. Okay, all right. Well, that, that's a, a bit of an invite to all of you sports scientists out there to uh, to potentially uh, get involved in some of the discussions on the many research studies that I think are probably in the making at the moment. And it's always fascinating to talk about the results of those. So having a look at some of the discussions, I don't want to go back to the discussion on the enhanced games because you can go back to podcasts from this and uh, have a look at uh, some of our thoughts on the enhanced games. That was one discussion yeah. on our on our on our discourse channel that was actually yeah. But and there was a bit of a shift. Yeah, this is actually uh, and Ross, yeah. I want to let you tell the story here because literally the day after yes. we did that podcast, there was something happened that actually we talked about in the podcast. Yeah, and and, and it made me realize that that was the one scenario that we hadn't mentioned because we were saying that the biggest thing, the biggest challenge, which is a good challenge because it probably undermines the enhanced games, which I think is good because <laughs> these things are, as you said, did you call it a load of bollocks? Yes, that your yeah, scientific that's conclusion. That's still my conclusion. <laughs> And we said that one of the things that would likely happen is that it would attract second tier athletes who even with the benefit of unlimited doping probably wouldn't run world records. So there would be a period of almost morbid fascination, but then as the performances failed to reach the levels you'd see in the non-enhanced, or <laughs> and that's probably not true, it's not non-enhanced, less enhanced games, um, people would lose interest. The, the other category of athletes, and literally, as you say, it happened the day afterwards, is a former athlete who's retired and is kind of walking out the door or has walked out the door, has nothing to lose and says, hang on, I'm still young enough. I was really good. Let me give this a crack. And James Magnuson was the, was the name. So Magnuson was the silver medalist in the 2012 Olympics in the 100 freestyle. He swam in 2016. He got a medal in the relay, not individual. So he's eight years on from his previous, his last Olympics and 12 years from his peak almost, that was his best games. But he said, I will dope to the gills for a million bucks and break the 50 meter <laughs> freestyle world record. So I suppose that's the other one is an athlete who is really good, was really good, freshly retired and says, I'll come back and give this a crack because I'm on the way out anyway. Mm. And we did actually suggest it in our podcast and saying that we would advise them if they were going to do anything around these enhanced games to actually get a top athlete or as close to a top yeah. athlete as you can get, yeah. offer them lots of money to potentially do what they say they're going to do and actually beat world records by enhancing an athlete. Yeah. I, I, we still think it's not going to happen. I don't think Magnuson's going to do it either, to be honest. Yeah, I'll I'll, I'll believe it when he actually dives off the starting yeah, box exactly into the too. pool. I want to see what that event looks like. I want to see who coaches him. I saw a quote from a coach who's got – Two guys who've gone under 22 seconds. I think the current record was 21, or was it under 21? I forget. I'd be, if I'm coaching, I'd be cautious about jumping in and say, I'll do that. Because what are you saying your your ethics and standards are? I'll coach you if you dope to the gills. Cool. And then next month, you're going to go to the real Olympics and you're going to stand there and say, believe my athletes. No, 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 no. So I, I think a lot of people are talking. 
and I want to see some action before I fully believe it. But yeah, that was a development after our last recording. Yeah. Okay. There so, was a sorry, Gareth. Yeah. There was a just on Patreon. There was there's a four. There's a there's a four. I get these words wrong all the time. There's actually a good discussion, and there've been some quite interesting comments. The one, the one comment was Jay, and then there was another one whose name I forget, but you'll know about some of the language they use. It's really inflammatory and unnecessary. Oh, yes. Like they True. equate they equate anti doping to colonialism. It's, yes. it's bizarre. Yeah. 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 It it's, cool. it, it's 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 sort of the patron of. Uh, members have really taken up on it. I didn't think there would be that much interest in it, um, but they've really, they've really gone for it in a in a big way, saying, you know, how could it ever work, sort of thing. Um, one interesting, or what I find interesting, is you know he's a fifteen meter freestyle swimmer, I think. Um, so if you were going to dope somebody for an event like this, then would it be better to have them in the short sprint events or in the longer endurance events? Would it be uh, more effective to dope at which type of event? Good question. Nah, uh, yeah, put you on the spot. I think I think the short ones in swimming. Swimming is really interesting, actually, and for a few reasons. You know, for example, they banned the swimsuits back in two thousand nine, and they've continued to get faster. So whatever swimmers are doing is overcoming that massive benefit of the swimsuits, and it's because it's. I think it's because it's so hydrodynamically limited. That small changes in efficiency through the water can make a big difference to yeah, performance. Well, technique makes a massive difference. Yeah, and, absolutely. And so it's interesting, like what what's different about swimming compared now in twenty twenty three four compared to what it was in two thousand and eight nine? Has human evolution and swimming preparation changed so much that they've overcome the the suit difference? Well, but they have. <laughs> Whereas in a lot of other sports, that's not happened. For instance, the sprint performances of the women in the 1980s. No one's come near those ones for 30 years. So, yeah. so that's an interesting thing. Swimming evolution is different. The other interesting thing about it, and I think they might have the same root cause, is that in swimming generally, as you get older, you actually move down in distance. Whereas in running events, you start out on the track, and then as you lose your speed, as you get older, you go up to the marathon. And so that's pretty interesting. And I've never really understood why that is the case. And it's it might have something to do with your technical efficiency and fluidity in the pool. And that's why, I, I don't know, my first reaction to Gareth's question is in swimming, shorter, because he's older. <laughs> that could be a completely wild guess. If any swimmers on Patreon, let us know in discourse why I'm wrong. How many how many ways I'm wrong when I said all that? <laughs> yeah, my only, I mean, my only experience um, and my sort of take on this is that I used to do a lot of master swimming 10 years ago where we would swim you know, with groups every single morning and do five kilometers and I'm six foot four, 95 kilos. And uh, you'd be up against, you know, 13 year old girls who were half your weight and they would beat you purely because of technique, not because mm. they were stronger. Yeah. Um, and I was thought you were going to say around this particular subject that does technique trump strength? So in other words, if you're doping and you have strength, does it, give you that advantage because I think to some extent, you know, a longer body definitely travels through water faster than a shorter body. Yeah. Well we know that. But we also know that um it's 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 probably fifty you talk to the experts in swimming, they'll tell you that seventy percent of swimming speed is technique. Yeah. Talk to the average well, person, they'll say fifty percent. But so it's a large proportion of people who agree that it's technique largely. Well that that raises an interesting question is like are you in, in if you had to pick a sport in which doping is likely to help you break a world record, would it be swimming? No, it would be powerlifting. 
<laughs> Probably, but then there's technique yeah. in that as well, isn't there? There's technique in everything, but to what extent is technique limiting? And I think swimming, you're right. I think it's massively important. Mm. Now, I'm not, I'm not one of those guys sitting here saying, oh, yeah, doping wouldn't help a swimmer, because clearly it would. But would it give you the same benefit as it gives a runner or a cyclist? I'm not sure. But I, for running and cycling, I would rather dope the distance athletes, because unless you, unless you get a guy who's really close in the 100 meter and then you can do it you know so probably the caliber of the athlete relative to the world record is more important than the where they sit on the distance time spectrum mm -hmm. but i would be more inclined to think that if you're going to succeed doping an endurance athlete maybe a 1500 meter 3000 type athlete where it's a bit of both you know you're right on that middle sweet spot yeah yeah mm. Anyway, so I'm sure that the discussion around the enhanced games will continue, and uh, not only on our discourse channel, but around the world, because it is something that is uh, very polarizing, because obviously there are people who, particularly the people from the enhanced games that are, you know, pushing this this agenda. And of course, there are lots of people on our, on our channels that are saying, well, it is, like I said, bollocks, which I still <laughs> maintain it is. Anyway, on to some other subjects. And this, you talked, you touched a little bit on this homemade sports drinks piece, but this is interesting because... Uh, I guess we've had a bit of a discussion about how do you start a sports drink brand? In other words, <laughs> we even created a little logo for our brand and we thought to myself, okay, well, how do we, how do we go about doing that? But I mean, Gareth, just having a look at some of the inputs on that, what was the general gist that you, you, you should and you, and you can make your own sports drinks or if you can't afford to make or buy them, can you make your own ones? In other words, what, what's the gist of making your own sports drinks and why would you do that? 50-50, I would say amongst the, uh, the discourse discussion was some do um, because let's face it, it's a lot cheaper because they're very expensive sports drinks um, if you're using them a lot. Um, and so we had some great recipes, I think, from uh, Joshua. I think Tom started the discussion saying, can I or should I? Um, Joshua came in with a uh, with a great recipe. And I actually, I think I, I messaged you on WhatsApp saying, I can't talk, I'm busy, I'm out buying Maltodextin. <laughs> as we speak sort of thing um we had lots of inputs actually from there george gerald joshua uh, and all these were recipes um all based on a theme or what works for them and then of course there were people who who came in and said i haven't got time i've got the patience i like to know what's in it um we've got a uci i think gerald is a uci registered rider so he has to be very careful on what he's ingesting as we'll probably touch on a bit later on um so he has to know the provenance of all his ingredients. Um, take batch numbers, things like that, I would have thought. So he says, I can't. So perhaps for the amateur athletes, it's okay. But um, the one thing that everybody said was test. For God's sake, test <laughs> on, on shorter, or shorter runs or whatever, because you don't want to use your new concoction in a nice long race and then find out it gives you GI problems halfway through um but yeah it's been really interesting to see uh how people have, have made their own stuff i mean ross if you look at some of those recipes what what is the basics of, of making your own sports drinks in other words if you look at some of those recipes what is the consistent theme and if you were going to do something yourself how would you do it uh sufficient carbs in the right ratio and the ratio is really important we've discussed recently remember okay i'll try and do this really quickly um there was a time when it was thought that the maximum you could oxidize carbohydrate-wise was 60 grams an hour, because at that point, you kind of saturated the, the transporter and you couldn't get any more out of the intestine into the, into the system. 
And then they discovered that if you mixed carbohydrate types, so glucose and fructose, or maltodextrin is just basically a polymer of glucose molecules, then you could actually increase that more. And that's where we now start talking 90, 100, 120 grams an hour. So there have been some studies looking at what's the optimal ratio within that 100 grams an hour, let's say, that you're going to take in. And they seem to have landed on like one unit of maltodextrin per 0.8 of carbs. So you need that. You need to be close enough to that, I think, so that those two sugars can work together. Makes sense. Yeah. Then the next one's flavor. Like that's the most, for me, important one. Like you, because you, anyone who's done three hours, four hours, five hours knows that what tastes good to you after 30 minutes does not taste good after two hours, 30 minutes, and even less after four. Mm. So whether it's palatable or not is probably the biggest challenge when you make it at home. And then preserving it, you have to have something that stops it from clumping together and getting wet and so on. So that's, and then that might affect the flavor. I'm trying now, a few people have given me different samples of product and it's really interesting. Even on our short ride that we do on Wednesdays, the first 45 minutes I tried one, tasted amazing. The last 15 minutes I didn't want to see it. <laughs> so within 35 minutes, it's only an hour and a half ride. It went from well, being this, good. This is one of the super carb mm. ones that we talked a little bit yeah, about. Yeah, yeah, it's a yeah, South exactly. African brand. Exactly. Um, can we mention it? Um, I don't know. Yeah, and they're not sponsors or anything. So. No. Yeah. Well, yeah. So if you're in South Africa, the brand is called 32 GI. Yeah. So this was their race fuel. So this yeah. is this is not their like high 1 to 0 0.8 one. But yeah, I tried it and I thought, this is really good. Wow, it's way better than what I normally have. <laughs> but like in the last 15 minutes, I was like, no, now it's too sweet. <laughs> So they feel like they coat your mouth with something, you know, you know that sensation. Yeah. yeah. So that's so the, so the challenge is that, that, and we've discussed this a little bit, but it's it's worth mentioning again because it is a very interesting subject, and um, because we were talking about it post the last the, the last podcast is that you have to create something that is palatable but delivers the maximum amount of carbs because largely most of us probably under fuel. Um, mm. on carbs big time for two reasons first of all we can't deal with too much unless you actually train your gut to do that and second of all you actually don't feel like having something that's ultra sweet so mm. you almost need something that is almost plainer but still delivers yeah. carbs, which is difficult to do and i think those in the industry will say that the biggest breakthroughs in the last while is the the delivery and the packaging of it you know so okay the one to 0 0.8 the glucose or the maltodextrin fructose ratio thing was a was a crucial like I don't want to say innovation, but let's say modification. Because it allows the body to absorb more. Yeah, that partnership of those two sugars, you know, and the fact that now you could get both in together. You could max out the glucose side and still oxidize the fructose side. That was that was key. But also the packaging. You remember like Morton, for instance, their value proposition was they package it in a, I think it's a pectin like casing. So it effectively hides it from the gut. So now all of a sudden you can get a higher concentration in there than you would otherwise have because if it's too sweet and too sugary, now you get water into the gut and then you're heading for trouble quite quickly. So the packaging and the delivery of it and the palatability of it, I think those have really been like big breakthroughs that have made this uh, this high high rate of delivery possible. So, I mean, if you had to give somebody, I mean, there are so many products on the market now. And as, as you have done yourself in the last week, you've been experimenting, you've bought quite a few of them, mm. most of them here in South Africa, yeah. because we're... I guess it's a science, it's an experiment of want to some extent. But what's the what's the general advice when you go there? I mean, if you go into the shop and there's this 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 shelf of stuff, and you're a cyclist, for instance, what should you look at? I mean, should I look at protein? Should I look at no. all the other? No, uh, if you're talking about on the bike, and unless you're doing some yeah, like really outrageous, if you're doing if you're doing like these rides, like we got some friends who do those like 
thousands of K things, then protein, yes. But for what we do, like, in fact, up to five, six hours, you don't really need protein intake. You might find that the addition of a little bit of protein to your carb drink changes its flavor and taste, and then it's beneficial. So it's a preference. But, but fuel-wise, it's not really that important. So you need to look at the carbohydrate, and you need to say, well, how much carbohydrate is this going to deliver me in two bottles? Because that's what most people can carry, right? Yeah. Maybe only one, depending on your bike. So you say, okay, I've got one bottle, and I can get... 30 grams. Okay, that's not really going to be enough. I need 60 to 80 grams in my one bottle. Which product's going to give me that? Now, the problem is 80 is a lot. So now you need something that's either going to be unbelievably sweet and potentially very concentrated, and then you've got a gut risk, mm -hmm. <laughs> or you need to get one of these products that can give you 80 because they've de developed a packaging for it that allows, in theory, in marketing, <laughs> you to do that. So yeah, that's probably what you want to look at because, and then you need to say, okay, if I can get I can get 60 in both bottles, that's 120. Now I'm good for two hours, and then I need a gel. Now I'm covered for three, if your goal is 60 an hour. I'm still not, by the way, I'm still not convinced that most people listening to this need 90, 100. Yeah, because we're not because riding the <laughs> You go out and you do like a four-hour ride at 160, 180 watts. You're not burning fuel at a rate that requires that kind of carb replacement. If you're up to 250, 300 watts like an elite cyclist, that's a different ballgame. You, you then you have a challenge with respect to energy delivery. But for most of us, I don't think you need to be sucked into that top end. I think you need to aim for 40 to 60 for your shorter rides, 60 to 80 for the longer ones. Mm. Yeah. So that's a, I mean, that's a good number to, to work with because mm. that is achievable. Most of the commercial products that you get now kind of give you that yeah. sort of rate. Pretty much. Um, and uh, what was quite astonishing is that a lot of the bottles, when we worked out the price, of a bottle of carb drink versus another competitor, mm. they were all around the same sort of point, yeah. which was interesting because um, I Except don't know. I don't know whether they made that calculation themselves and said we've got to make sure that we are in the ballpark in terms of a cost per bottle. Except for your premium brands, <clears throat> like there are yeah. premium brands, like Morton would be one. Amex is another one that's now in the country, and I was given a, a bit of those the, uh, the other day. Rode with it this morning, and you can get eighty grams into a bottle of that, and it tastes really good. Was, I was like, it was good. I mean, you know, after the third hour, I was still looking forward to sipping from it. And the other thing you remember is they get warm. <clears throat> and so what tastes good cold does not taste good warm. In fact, yes. that's one of the biggest challenges, actually. You gotta, if you're going to taste test what you make, do it warm, because I promise you, you're gonna, it's going to be a different experience. <laughs> Somebody described when you have a, one particular drink that, so that we, we all know here in South Africa said, when I drink a warm bottle of that, it tastes like, it tastes like I'm drinking my own sweat. Yeah, it's <laughs> really horrible. And then the other thing is, remember the gels and the bars and food and stuff, and you might get a little bit of salt in like that, because again, the third, the fourth hour, the sweetness starts to become overwhelming. So a little bit of salt, something to chew on is potentially helpful. So that's why when you're going very long, you might take some nuts or pretzels or something salty. But the gels, that same company whose gel, the 32GI that I filed a little bit sickly sweet towards the end, they have a gel that has 67 grams of carbs in one sachet, in one gel. So that's, wash that down with a lot of water. Yeah, but it actually that, that actually does taste really good. I don't know what it's like after six hours, we'll see. But yeah, that one's quite palatable. So even within brands, some of it's it's just personal preferences. But once you hit the target, it's all about the taste. Yeah. Well, we've just done a story in Bicycle Magazine where we used um, a former guest on the show, Kim Hoffman, to kind of give us some advice as to this, uh, in other words, how to pack your pockets. And uh, it was quite interesting because here in, in South Africa, there's a there's a, a, a chain store here which sells basically like um, 
baby food but in an adult fashion it's like a it's like a sort of a gels um that sort of thing and she was recommending that and that gives you about 40 to 50 grams per hour of uh, food and I, I guess that's also the other side we're talking particularly only if you're supplementing with um drinks and gels but potentially you can also make up that gap with real foods along the way so things like sandwiches and bananas and those sort of things all count towards that so yeah it's a it's a very interesting discussion so have a look at it on discourse if you're on our discourse channels because uh that will continue to grow and i'm sure lots of people will have lots of suggestions around um how that all works out Right, um, Simon M, uh, who gave us a bit of a, a race review. I mean, Ross, you touched a little, touched mm. a little bit on the fact that these uh, some of these race reviews are quite <clears throat> detailed. Um, but if you are going to do a race review, what do you think people need to know about race review in terms of your experience of it? The technical stuff. Like? Like how you pace yourself, how you manage the effort. So, for instance, if you've got a power meter, share some data. You know, what was your 20-minute max? What was your five-minute max? When did you spend your 10-minute max with one minute and why? That sort of stuff. Obviously, a little bit on training, if that's your focus, your nutrition strategy, what equipment you might have used. Did you change something? I think that's what the patron community would want to hear the most about. I don't know your thoughts, Gareth. Yeah, it was, um, it was just an idea we had, wasn't it, um, quite early in, because uh, Simon was doing a duathlon. Um, uh, an off-road duathlon, um, and he mentioned it, and I thought that would be really interesting to know not just how he gets on, but uh, the nuts and bolts of it, how he felt, because he was asking about um, nutrition before the race, how he should fuel for it. Um, I thought, well, I wonder how he gets on, not just out of curiosity, because it's something, I think, for, for everybody else to learn perhaps from it, because as a runner, I actually want to get into doing duathlons. So I knew I was going to want to pick his brains about transitions and things anyway. So I was being a little bit selfish there. Um, but I didn't want it to be, uh, I think I said at the time, one of these, you know, sort of flowery race reports, which is like, you know, we, we set off and the sun was shining brightly sort of thing and it gets really boring <laughs> on people's blogs. Um, but And he hit the nail on the head, I think, because I think you, you you sent a message about it saying, I can't believe this guy's put like you know, nearly a 3,000 word reporting and it's it's technical and yeah, it's, it's great it's, 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 cool. it's great it's how he fueled yeah. um the, the what bike he was using the course itself his nutrition during it um and then what how he felt during the race how his nutrition affected him perhaps how the course affected him um and then what I, what I found then was he took he gave us a lot of takeaways from it. What he needs to work on, um, you know, he need, he's saying I need to work on hills. And the next thing you know, the rest of the patrons have read it, jumping in, loving it, and saying this is how you can train this part of your race. This is perhaps what you could have done. And it, and it was great to see them join in. And he's obviously taken a lot from it. And now he's got a record. I'm sure he would have done it for his coach anyway. He says he's got a coach do a race report, but I think he's really thought deeply about this. Um, and, and now he's getting feedback from other people. Perhaps his coach would have given him feedback and he could take it to his coach and say, look, these guys are saying on the hills, keep your power level, whatever. You know, I, I, I'm not looking at it now, but that's the sort of thing, thing he was getting out of it. Uh, and congratulations, because he won his age category as well, Simon. So I think you're off to some European championship somewhere. <clears throat> yeah, so, I was just going to say that the race report ends with a picture of him on the podium. <laughs> so but you then you know. Yeah. something right. Yeah, yeah. So, and that's why, I, again... It's it's our child, so we love it. But it's it's the quality of the content from people who are actually not just, you know, saying, hey, I ran a race, sun was out, had fun. It's actually really good detailed stuff, and I'm sure people will get value from it. And as Gareth says, if you don't get value from the initial report, you'll get value from the conversations about it afterwards. 
Yeah. There's a lovely um, uh, kind of leading on from that, a discussion on carbon learning, which uh, Jeremy Kay asked about the benefits of carbon learning before races. And Kevin, who is one of our coaches on our discourse channel, was talking about the fact that he doesn't recommend that for any of his athletes. I mean, there's, I mean, remember here in South Africa, carbon loading was a huge thing, you know, mm. pasta parties and that sort of thing before races. I mean, has that thinking changed? And, and a little, why? yeah, a little bit. Eh? Like, so way, way back now, you're going to go back decades, four or five decades, pretty clear that when you ran out, you failed of energy, right? So when you're carbo, and you're, and you're seeing that this is the thing, right? Sadly, we never run out of fat stores. They keep us going for weeks. Carb stores are the limited one because you've only really got a few hours worth of those. And when you deplete those carb stores, you fail. That's at the end of exercise. So if that happened to you at the 36K mark of a marathon, for instance, it's a bad day out. <laughs> yeah. And so they said, well, okay, then what we got to do is we got to fill up before we start. And that's where carb loading came in. So they said, let's top up the muscle glycogen and the, and the liver glycogen as much as we possibly can so that we delay the point of that depletion. And that was the thinking for a long time. And part of that was you had to deplete before you loaded. So for three or four days, you would eat very little. And then for two days before the race, you would overdo the carbs in an attempt to sort of overshoot. So a couple of things have changed. One is you no longer need the depletion because when you are highly trained, your muscles are also already very good at putting glycogen into themselves. <laughs> They've got an enzyme called glycogen phosphorylase, and that's the enzyme that's responsible for converting the glucose in your blood into the muscle glycogen that's stored. Make sense, yeah? Mm -hmm. And that enzyme is really active because of your training. And so you're already quite good at storing glycogen. So you don't need this depletion and then the loading. All you really need to do is eat normally while you reduce your training, which is what you do anyway leading up to a race. And so glycogen loading, carb loading, kind of shifted away from making this deliberate attempt to put glycogen into your body to rather just being clever about managing training and continuing to eat normally. And you get the same benefits. And then the problem, because again, and this is what was made, the point was made in discourse, is that a lot of people feel very heavy and bloated the day after glycogen carb loading. You eat too much the night before, you wake up and you just don't feel good. And so that's the sluggishness. My, my personal feeling is that's because when you store glycogen, you store it with water, and I just think you gain too much weight, a lot of it's fluid weight, and you just don't feel very good. In, in addition to the potential other things with carbs, gluten, and so on, which some people may also be affected by. So personally, my feeling is you do nothing different with your diet before the race. You just reduce the training, and you can assume that your glycogen levels will be high. And then what's more important is what you do on the day. That pre-race meal and then in-race is probably more important. That's where you focus your energy. Because a lot of the discussions and a lot of the Articles mm -hmm. we run on Runners World suggest that there, there, there is there is some focus on carbohydrates as you build up towards a race, without eating mounds of pasta. Um, and as you say, it's like a, it's a, a tiered approach. I mean, what was interesting a few years ago, and this, I'm talking 1980s when I talk a few years ago, but some of the great runners of the Comrades Marathon here in South Africa, Bruce Fordyce, used to do these depletion diets. In other mm. words, they would not eat carbs for two or three days, then suddenly hit a carb yeah. hard. And with the idea that their body would suddenly suck up all this glycogen. Yes, because what happens is when you do that depletion phase, your glycogen phosphorylase, that enzyme that's basically the dormant gatekeeper into your muscles, that enzyme gets upregulated because your body sees less glycogen in the muscle. It says, let's make more. And then it drives. The, so that enzyme actually increases its activity in the depletion. And then when you then give it the carbs, it goes back in. But an elite athlete's already got a highly active dormant. 
glycogen phosphorylase. So they don't need the depletion. So yeah, they were but doing if you're that. Average athlete, you say that there is still some merit in that. You've got some there. Um, okay. But if you're an average athlete, I would also argue that you don't really need to carb load as aggressively as they were trying to anyway. So that's why I think you're better off just habitual diet through to the race with a change in training. Because as you drop your training volumes, you're going to probably be over consuming carbs, right? Yeah. So that probably does the job. Yeah. So they were doing that in the 80s, but I think it was subsequently discovered that as long as you were trained, you didn't need to do it. Yeah. Mm. Could I just Not ask you a quick best. question? Um, because you did note that um, you said you estimate that in the second half of a race or ride, yeah, you yeah. would take seventy-five percent of your your new your fuel, and yeah. perhaps forty percent in the last quarter. Why would you back end it towards the end of a race? Yeah, Gareth, yes. I know I'm putting you on the spot too, today. Too frequently, though. <laughs> uh, th there's some data that shows, and 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 it's logical actually that remember your carb stores. There's two of them. There's liver glycogen and muscle glycogen. One of the things you're doing when you consume carbs, either from the, the drink or the gel or the food, is you're trying to spare or delay the use of the liver glycogen. Does that make sense? So you're basically saying, listen, I've got you covered, mm -hmm. liver. You take a bit of a break. Let's use you at a lower rate because the, the bottles and the gels are going to do the work that you otherwise would have done. And so your muscle glycogen continues to be burned. Your liver glycogen is burned less, so you get less oxidation. But one of the things that happens over time is that you're still using that liver glycogen. And so it is gradually starting to drop down. And the muscle glycogen is also starting to get lower and lower. And that, towards the end of exercise, starts to become potentially one of the problems. So now you have to deliver that glycogen or that carbohydrate, rather, glucose, to the muscles at a rate that can offset the fact that it's gone down over the course of exercise. And when you look at fuel use over time, what you tend to find is that over time, the muscle glycogen use goes up because you just need to use more and more of it because it's seeing less and less in the blood. This is in a, in a fasted, non-fed state. Mm. And so as the demand at the muscle is increasing, you probably need to meet that demand from your external stores. And that's why, Gareth, I say you can, you can probably plan to, and certainly it bears with my experience, is that towards the back end of particularly long rides or runs back when I was running, that was when the requirement for the carbohydrate is at its highest. And so... If you did four hours, it's not necessarily the case that you need 60 grams per hour. I think you can go 40, 40, 80, 100, because mm -hmm. you probably needed more at the end because of just the way that we use our fuel stores over time. Yeah, interesting. That's a good explanation. Thanks. Thanks for the question, Gareth. That's a good one. Um, now, one of the interesting things I now know, Ross, for those of you who listen to this podcast will know that Ross is obviously very involved at his, his day job. Um, is uh, working for World Rugby. And uh, what's interesting, there was some discussion around the first use of the first bit of uh, moment that somebody was actually taken off the field because of these mm. mouth guards that are actually tracking impact. So just tell us, this is George Turner. Yeah, he was um, the player. He was the player. Um, so he was yeah. he was, uh, he was was um, replaced at, at 17 minutes into the game. Um, just give us some background into this because there was some discussion as to when the impact had happened and mm. hardware, but this is something I'm very close to you, Ross. I'm going to give you even further background. The mouth guards measure head acceleration, linear in Gs and angular in rotational radians per second squared, right? So anytime you take an impact on your head, your head accelerates, or on the body, you might get a whiplash or an inertial head load. And this mouth guard is measuring those movements. So it's not now, the impact it's measuring, it's measuring the acceleration. In response to the force right. and the impact, yeah, exactly. Okay. And that's quite, quite an important point because it, 
it changes what we understand that value to mean. Because if I if I snuck up behind you and knocked you on the head, you wouldn't have anticipated it, and your head acceleration would probably be greater than if you saw me coming and could brace and prepare for it. Yeah. And so that's one of the modifiers that means that impact doesn't necessarily equal acceleration. Anyway, the sport the, the sport is under pressure because it's quite clear that there are frequent head impacts and a, actually a very small proportion of them cause a concussion or a clinical change. You know, we've got the data, probably every 300th tackle causes a concussion, but every tackle in theory involves an impact. So you can't tackle without some risk of a head acceleration. Now, not all tackles register because sometimes they're so small they don't get picked up. But the point is they are exposures, and we can only really measure the exposure once it reaches a certain clinical outcome. Am I making sense? Yeah. So the sport is saying, okay, well, here's a tool that allows us to not just measure the one in 300. We can measure the other 299 as well. And so we need to have this in players. It's going to, in five years, six years' time, it's going to become really important, never mind 30 years' time when we've got – 50-year-old retired players saying that my problems have been caused by my head impact exposures. And I will say, well, we don't need to guess anymore. We know exactly what your head impact exposures were because we measured it. So that's kind of the long game here. But the, the immediate game is to say, all right, let's, let's add the mouth guard to the protocol that currently spots when a player needs to come off for an, a, t- a test. We are not using the mouth guard to diagnose a concussion. You're not even using the mouth guard to predict when a player needs to come off for a test. You're using it as a second set of eyes. Because at the moment, we are relying in the sport on the eyes of the team doctor and the match day doctor to see a player in a tackle who's slow to get up, dizzy, ataxic, tonic posturing, loses consciousness. That's that's maybe the most obvious one. But now you're saying, well, what if there's an impact that is actually quite significant, but either because it's unsighted or because it didn't present, you, you didn't see it. Well, the mouth guard can add. So it's becomes, the mouth guard becomes an additive tool to the head injury assessment protoc- protocol. And then what you say is, let's get that player off because they've experienced what is a very significant impact. Get them off, do the test, do the screen. They may very well pass it, which is what happened here, and go back on the field. But at least we know. It's prudent to say that if we have technology that can spot particularly high head accelerations, that we at least put you in front of a doctor at the time that it happened so that we can make sure that everything's okay. And now we know it happened. So now we test you two hours after the match and two days after the match as well. So does that all make sense about how it's been done? How did you decide on what the threshold would be for somebody to come off? So I've just been asked questions on this on Twitter by Progressive Rugby. So I'm going to send them the link to this podcast when it comes out. But basically the threshold is, it's a combination of linear and angular. It's 70 Gs linear and 4,500 angular, which are very high. But you see, they had to be high because what happens is for 80 minutes, you've got 30 players exposed to this head in, head acceleration number. And if you don't set it high enough, you're going to send players off the field every yeah. few minutes. So we had to be practical, not theoretical. And we had to say, what is the realistic number of these actual on-field removals that the sport can tolerate? Because otherwise, otherwise, you might as well put a revolving door on the team doctor's, the match day doctor's office and say, right, you'd have you'd have a queue of guys saying, here, take a number as they come off the field. Yeah. So it had to be really high. And I mean, that combination, that 70 and 4,500 is literally like one in a thousand tackles. It is unbelievably high. 
but it had to be that way. And over time, I hope that we can bring it down and start to, and also we'll understand maybe we don't necessarily need to get a guy off the field. We can test and assess them after the game and two days after the game so that we don't load the on-field system too much. But that's how it was said. It was, it was practical. We had data from 70,000 impacts in the men's and the women's games. And we said, right, where, where do we need to draw this line so that we're testing high accelerations but without overloading the medical infrastructure? Yeah, And so anyway, so Turner goes and becomes the first men's player. There was a competition for women in October, November last year where we had a number of these, but the first men's instance happened last weekend and he was hit on the head by, in fact, his own teammate's knee. There was a lot of, um, there was a lot of discussion after this about which impact it was and the media, without exception, reported the wrong one. Uh, we had the data and the video, so we were able to identify where it was. And it was an impact he took to the head from his own player's knee, accidental one, which then caused uh, those thresholds to be exceeded. And so he was then signaled to go off for a screen. And, I mean, did they look at him afterwards to decide whether he was concussed or not? Yeah, so he, now he's in the HIA protocol. So that's what it's doing. It's adding players to the screening process. So he gets the HIA one at the time in-game. He gets the HI two two hours after the match, and he gets the HI three two days after the match. So he's now been screened properly to say, that, okay, we know that you took an impact that caused a significant head acceleration, a one in a thousand impact, not not one in five. Yeah. <laughs> That's important. Yeah, it's a big and, and it will be criticized for saying it's not aggressive enough. You should test the one in a hundred. Yeah, okay. You come along and tell the coaches. You saw the you see the actual reaction from the coach here to this one. Imagine what would happen if you did it eight times a match. Well, the coach didn't respond well to them. Yeah, well, the, you see, the coach doesn't want to lose the player on the For field. Sure. Of course they don't. It's yeah. 100% understandable. So I get so tired of all the people who solve these problems with theoretical solutions. They fail at the first point of contact. So we, we're trying to get something that, that will allow us to measure what we think is really important moving forward. But if we did it and it caused eight removals a game, we'd run out of time. Yeah, it makes sense. <laughs> so now we at least we can say, right, you've had this impact. It's significant. It's a very rare, large magnitude one. Let's put you in front of your doctor for three days and see exactly what happens. Yeah. Did Interesting you, um, one. Yeah. Did you at any point, because this was uh, the second round of matches, wasn't it? It must have been the mm. fourth or fifth match. Did you start thinking... Have we set this too high? Because yeah, we haven't had one yet. And you were expecting one a, one a, one a match, yeah? Um, I, I watched these games one. between, I watched these games through closed fingers and like just peeping through gaps in my fingers because I. You try being Welsh. Yeah. Yeah. It's <laughs> like that every match. <laughs> for different reasons. Um, we were, we were, we were very anxious that it was too low and we'd get too many. And then, of course, we're very anxious that it's too high and we don't get enough. And so I'm doing a tally as the tournament goes, of what are near misses, you know, so where it's within 10% of those thresholds. And there have been a few of those. And so it's quite possible, in fact, likely, that in time we will change the thresholds and start looking at them more intelligently. You know, like at the moment it's fairly blunt, right? It's linear, angular, combined. Maybe there's a way to put them together. Maybe there's a way to say cumulative load for a player through the game because it's quite possible that an impact in the 63rd minute at the same head acceleration is more likely to present than an impact in the fifth minute. Yeah? Could, that's, could, that's this therefore, could this therefore be a sign then that it's actually working, that players are being more careful and tackling properly? In time, we'll be able to say that. I think because we don't have a historical comparison to make, you know, like I would love to have, because as I said, we, we've for the last seven, eight years studied concussions as our outcome of interest and they are 
whilst too frequent in the game, actually very rare relative to the exposures. One, as I say, it's a one in 300 event. And so we can look at that, but it would have been amazing to say like where we are today versus where we were in 2017, how many head acceleration events are there? Then I would be able to say, yes, Gareth, we've reduced head acceleration events of a high magnitude by 20% and we've increased the low magnitude ones. That would be success. But we don't have it because it's we're literally in the first steps. And that's why it was so important to get this mouth guard in use because of the opportunities and the questions that can be answered now moving forward are, I mean, I, 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 I wouldn't have enough professional careers to answer all of them. So we're going to have 50 people working on this in the next three years. Sure. It's going to be fascinating. So I mean, the data from that's going to be absolutely yeah. fascinating. And then think about like season load. Yeah. Is a player more likely to have in the Northern Hemisphere, their season starts September, let's say? more likely to experience head accelerations in April, May, or in the first few months of the year. When a player comes back after an injury, whether it's a concussion or another injury, is the head acceleration risk and the concussion risk increased? We know the concussion risk is. Is it the same for head acceleration? So there are so many interesting questions we can answer because the the data, the volume of data is absolutely enormous. Gareth, a bit more rugby news. Uh, just explain what happened in the uh, Scotland-France game where uh, there was a it was a, it was a try that wasn't awarded initially. Then it was awarded. I mean that that's creates a bit it of. Wasn't. Oh, it wasn't. It wasn't awarded. Yeah. It Sorry. wasn't. It wasn't initially. Then it sounded like it was on the way to being awarded, and yes. then it wasn't eventually. So just explain some of the background to that, Gareth. I mean that's been a bit a good discussion on our on our groups. Well, it was uh, the fr- France were on the Scottish line. Uh, no, wrong way around. Other way around. <laughs> Scotland were on the on the French line in the in the very last minute of the game, uh, and a try would have won it for Scotland. Um, and they got over the, over the line, um, and the referee said that the uh, the ball wasn't grounded, um, and then went up to the to the TMO, um, and then there seemed to be a little bit of a, a back and forth, um, and eventually, and after an excruciatingly long time, it seemed, uh, especially if you were watching it with people in the pub. Um, who couldn't understand, well, who could understand what was going on, but getting increasingly frustrated. Um, they they eventually said that it, it was uh, it wasn't a try, and France won the game, and Scotland were very aggrieved because it did look well to to my eye, and I'm no expert, obviously, that the ball was grounded. Um, and since then, Scottish rugby are calling on the sports governing body to acknowledge that uh, a mistake was made. I don't think anything will ever come out of that. In fact, the Scottish Rugby Union, I've got it here, say the integrity of tournament was being in danger of compromised um, because they, they felt there was a U-turn on the decision um, and they want to know how the process was played out. Um, and we had a little chat about it uh, with Ross and that. And I think... Uh, because the referee didn't give it in the first place, they've got to actually overturn the decision there rather than if he if he'd given it, they would have had to have found a reason why it wasn't given. Um but and I think but what I think is missed in this, but all the howls of outrage, and I can imagine how Twitter exploded at the time. Um luckily I didn't bother looking at that. Um but you've got to remember that tech was brought in originally uh to re- re- remove the real mistakes that were made, um, especially in a sport, I think cricket probably brought it in first with Hawkeye, and it was to remove that obvious mistake that the umpire had made. Um, 
and of course now its scope has gone further and further and people are relying on it to do more and more but I, I think people have got to remember and it'll probably be popular with the Scottish that if it wasn't for the TMO they wouldn't have had that option in the first place at least they were given a chance to have a look at it um, prior to <laughs> yeah. TMO um, it, the referee would have said no it's held up end of the game and there would have been no outcry about it that's the yeah. way it goes so um, it, it's almost like they're making a rod to themselves with their own back by pushing T uh, technology further and further in this way to my mind mm. I guess it plays into my point around I mean I'm, I'm a bit of a traditionalist when it comes to these sort of thoughts that I think you should go back to these games like cricket and rugby where the umpire makes the call without the help of technology because there is a human element that in a way is part of the game if you suddenly make it like why would you have an umpire anyway if the if the umpire has no has no actually no authority mm. in a cricket so match so, I mean, I'm I'm one of those that kind of believes that the less technological um, involvement in the game, the more the game is in the true spirit of what sports about. So, the, the 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 principle that I think all sports that use technology have tried to go with is they want the on-field person to still be the main decision maker. So, for instance, in cricket, when there's an appeal for LBW caught behind, there is still a human who has to initially make the call. Then that call can be challenged because I think it was recognized that you do get egregious mistakes. And if you can get rid of them with technology, then why not? Because I agree, I agree with you that like there is a human error element to it, but like you can actually reduce that as much as possible. If not, if you can, why not? Right. So every sport does it. Cricket does it, where if it's an LBW and you've watched a lot of cricket, you'll see that it's umpire's call in the event of a marginal video review. In the NFL, I was watching the Super Bowl last weekend, but they do the same thing. The on-field umpires make a call, and then the video referee has to find compelling enough strong evidence to overturn it. So there's a threshold that is not, give me a call here. It's actually, I've set a bar by saying the ball was lost, or it's a fumble, or an incomplete pass, whatever it is in football. In this particular instance, the on-field referee, Nick Berry, has said, no try, held up. That sets a bar that is higher than if the referee said, tell me what happened. Was it a try, yes or no? Right. And you know, like the, the sports considered that. They say, okay, yes, try, yes or no. And then there are howls of outrage that you've disempowered the guy on the field. No, 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 no. He has to be a... So then you do that, and now there are howls of outrage that he didn't get to ask an open-ended question. So which, do you, which way do you want it? That's the problem. Like, And I mean, it's just on the scientific side... There is technology that can live inside the balls, for instance, that can tell you where the ball is on the field, but it wouldn't be sensitive enough to tell if it's on the ground because the difference between being on someone's boot and on the ground is a few centimeters, and that's not possible. Mm -hmm. But that ball, it's called the uh, Sportable, was the company that developed it. There's, there's a prospect that that can be used, for instance, in future to call forward passes because you would know how fast the ball was moving, and then if it moved in a forward direction out the hands, if it accelerated forward out the hands, it was a forward pass. So, whereas if it goes sideways, it still drifts forward, but not. You see, you all know the controversy with forward passes. So, there's a possibility of tech to solve some of these problems, but that one there, I can't see how else you 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 fix that. Do you really want that though? Judging whether it passes forward by the use of a ball, it's it's getting to the point then when yeah, as Mike says, do you really need? a referee on That's, the field because you look at how it breaks the immersion of the game in football with yeah, VAR, yeah, sure. whether a goal's been scored and fans don't even know whether they have they can celebrate anymore i've been to yes. a football game and you, they score your team scores you just think oh well we've got to wait now for var because you just you just can't enjoy that moment and sport is just being broken up and the immersion's gone for the fans we, and the people yeah, yeah. when we played 
when we played Nigeria in the fi- in the semi final of the African Cup recently, the Afcon, they scored a goal that was disallowed and brought back for a penalty to us. <laughs> did you see that? No. So not only did the Nigerian fans not get to celebrate their goal, they waited for three or four minutes to not celebrate a goal and get a penalty against their team. <laughs> So that's that's it's the kind of uh, that's the kind of emotional roller coaster that they've put fans on now. It is it is it is a problem, and I mean I'm not saying that I, I support the idea of the smart ball. I'm just saying that tech can solve a lot of problems, but it is an interesting philosophical problem now to have. Is that do you want the tech to necessarily solve that problem? And the, you know what the problem is? Is the I don't know if it's hypocrisy as opposed to like just selective opinion. Is that if your team loses a game or concedes a try because of a clear forward pass, then you want it? Yeah. If your tree scores a team because of it, then you say, let's not disrupt the game too much. And that's kind of what happens all the time in rugby is people are so selective. They'll be the beneficiaries of human error one week and say, human error is okay, we should tolerate it. And the next week they'll be on the front line arguing for change. <laughs> yeah, You can't please everyone. And so they just have to hold a line. And I think that, I think rugby's got the right line. It's just, you get these, it's, yeah, it's not a storm in a teacup because it matters. These results matter, but they do. unsolvable they do, thing. But I, I mean, just what Gareth said, I can't support that theory enough. Like I, I give an example of, for instance, of a rugby situation where a team will score a try and then that trial will be disallowed because of a knock-on that happened three phases before, um, which often happens where suddenly a, a, a referee would have picked up something or the TMO would have said, oh, there's a knock-on. And sometimes that knock-on has no beneficial effect on the actual products of play. It just touched a boot or something like that. Um, and actually the trial was deserved, but because of technicality, it's not, it's not allowed. So I guess that it's that element that I, I think what Gareth and I are saying is true. It, it takes away from a little bit of the, I don't know. I'm going, spontaneity. Uh, spontaneity. Spontaneity. Yeah. What's today? Friday. To, I'm going flying next Friday, the 23rd to London. And there's a big shape of the game meeting and there's a whole agenda item on like oh, there we go. use of the TMO and stuff. And this is, this is a problem rugby's grappling with. And Gareth, I mean, that meeting with you, please. You can bo- both come. I'm sure they'd love. <laughs> I'm going to play this discussion in for them and they can decide based on what we've said. We voted, we've decided it's done. Right. <laughs> but anyway, the point I'm making is that this is like always on the agenda and it is, it is a, Really interesting, scientific, complex, philosophical problem. Yeah. Hmm. Something that's not particularly philosophical, although slightly controversial, uh, the positive doping case of the Norwegian trail runner, Stian Angermund. And and this is an interesting one, Gareth, because the guy that posted this in our discourse platform actually knows the athlete and said that this guy is innocent of all these things. And uh, when I read this, I kind of, Definitely, I was angling more towards that. I kind of agreed with him. This this was just a case of somebody who had been caught with a performance-enhancing substance, but actually it wasn't it, – it, he seemed pretty innocent to that. He, it was a bit like a dolphin being caught in a fishing net. You know, it's good to have – I mean, we know we have to fight against doping, but there are always going to be some athletes that are going to get caught and are innocent in some respect. Yeah, Um this is this was a bit of a, of, a, of an odd one. He was uh, tested positive after the uh, OCC race in uh, in France last August, part of the UTMB series. Yeah. Um, when I first saw it, uh, I was quite shocked actually, and that's that's part of it maybe, um, because what's most interesting is has been people's reactions to it. Is because every time I've seen him, he comes across as a really genuine, uh, really nice guy, one of those nice guys, and so I. Immediately, my first reaction was, well, he's probably not guilty. It's probably a mistake. 
And then I thought, well, why am I thinking like that? Why am I presuming innocence? I had to stop myself and think, well, it's probably because if this was a Kenyan marathon runner, I'd probably be presuming guilt. And we, we've got this sort of unconscious bias going on, haven't we? And because he's a Norwegian trail runner, well, the Norwegians, I've checked, to my mind, they, they haven't got a doping problem. And in fact, there's one Norwegian, which is currently banned on, on the on, on the list. Um, and he's a trail runner, and you don't see many positives in trail running. Whether they test enough is another matter. But of course, you see then a Kenyan marathoner. Kenya's got a massive doping problem, as we know. And um, there's another marathon. one this week, actually. There's another one, another one yeah. this week. Yeah. So, of course, we've yeah. got this unconscious bias. So, I see this Norwegian trail runner and think, oh, he's probably innocent. And you give him the benefit of the doubt. But unfortunately for him, he, both his samples are positive. And um, I think he's even looking out. Uh, it was sort of suggested that um, he might have consumed something containing the sub, uh, a substance from a contaminated bottle. Um, I think he was uh, caught for. Uh, yeah, it's a, a blood pressure drug. Yeah, a masking yeah. agent. Yeah. Um, which could be uh, a masking agent. Which could be a masking agent. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but which professional athlete takes a bottle they don't really know these days? Um, and I've been looking into it since. Um, I had some interesting comments I listened to from uh, Corinne Malcolm. And she's saying, perhaps one of the issues with trail running is that the education of the athletes isn't good enough um, about dope testing because they haven't been subjected to it, are they actually um, up, to, up to speed with what they should be doing? We are talking earlier about um, supplements and whether they should be taking the batch numbers. Do they know that they need to do this? Are they going to be able to prove their innocence? Um, um, and so it was asked, has he got any way out of this? And the simple answer at the moment is he, he's unfortunately guilty and proven innocent. I mean, he's even looking at having his urine DNA tested to check that they had the right sample. That's how uh, desperate he is almost. So, so yeah, it's because of the sport uh, not being, I don't think, tested as well. Because w when we had the conversation then, we went looking, I was looking through the dope testing rules for uh, UTMB. Uh, I think it was something called the Quart system, which it's uh, it was a French doping test uh, uh, people who were there, but there was a Quart system. Um which is another independent doping agency. And it doesn't look really like trail and ultra running because they haven't got a um, a centralized body looking after them. Like, you know, you've got World Athletics for the track because they haven't got this centralized body. It's all a bit nebulous. Nobody seems to be taking the lead on this or leading the, leading the testing or leading the education of athletes. And, and so I think when these cases arise now, um, in trail and ultra running, they're going to need to be centralized somewhere. Mm. Your, what was your analogy in your first ever discourse post? You used an analogy for it. I talked about the fact that he's the dolphin caught in the fishing net. No. Yeah. I mean, I, I, problem, do, I do think that that does happen. But The problem with it is, <laughs> and, and, it, and, and it does happen, but the problem is that all the fish that are caught in the fishing nets pretend to be dolphins too. Yes, of course. Yeah. And so... That's why that's why anti-doping's got the strict liability concept, and that's the net that this guy's now caught in, because as guys said, he is guilty till proven innocent. That's not by default. That's by virtue of positive tests. So to be clear, it's not one of those draconian, 
you're a doper and we, you know, it's actually, hang on, you've now been caught with a banned substance in your urine or your blood sometimes. And now you have to try and explain how it got there. And it's very rare that they are able to do that. I was explaining it to a couple of people on discourse and can think of one or two examples where athletes have been completely exonerated for, for a positive test where the athlete really has to show that they took every possible precaution, you know, to the extent that like, there's one example in rugby where the, the players took a supplement, but that supplement had been signed off at two levels above them as clean. So they could show we did what we could do. There was no more I could do as a player to avoid a positive test. And in fact, it was someone else's fault that I failed this test. And then you get off. But the, the ratio of athletes who use this excuse and get off to those who use the excuse and can't is astronomically low. It's like one, remember Houlihan, burrito. And that's just one of the most famous ones recently. But it, the, the reason, to, to, so I'd, I'd echo what Gareth was saying. The thing that always strikes me about these is that I look at the substance they get done for and I go, that's so unusual. I've never heard of this. Then I think I'm probably more inclined to believe a contamination question or issue, you know, because well, if it's an androlone or something, I say, oh, geez, you know, you're unlucky, but geez, you were unlucky with just the kind of drug you'd use. <laughs> and you happen to be tested on just the right occasion as well. Gee, how unlucky can you be? Whereas when it's this, I think, I mean, there's a lot of ways you can get away with doping. I don't know that you do this one. Although as a masking, you see, it's tricky. Well, that, that was one of my questions. I feel like you'd have to be like Walter White from Breaking Bad, being a chemistry teacher to understand that something like this might be a masking right. agent for something else. I mean, isn't everything a masking agent to some extent? If it causes diuresis, it is, yes. But not everything which, is. Which but diuresis is? Losing fluid because right. you're trying to like excrete the drug more quickly. And that's why this is a – Gareth, it's a blood pressure drug, right? Chlor yeah. Chloratidine yeah. or something. Yeah, that's yeah. right. Yeah. So it's a blood pressure thing. So it's a it's a diuretic, and that's why it would be on the banned list as a masking agent. Not, happens to be a blood pressure drug as well. But I mean, look. In theory, the athlete could go to the ba the banned list and pick one of the things on it. <laughs> you could dope using the anti doping list if you wanted to. <laughs> yes, it, it, it makes sense that if he went to his doctor and his and his doctor said, "Well, I've, this is obviously something he'd be prescribed if he was taking it." Yeah, but, but he's saying he hasn't yeah, even taken this. Clear. He's not no. he's not saying there's even a chance that I took this. He's no. saying it has to be. And you know, like the other one was a heart medication that Camilla Valieva failed that test for. We yeah. spoke about her in our recent podcast, and she tried to blame it on contamination, either from strawberry cake or her grandfather's glass of water that he obviously mixed the tablets in and then she drank from the same glass. And okay, they didn't accept that, clearly. They said there were numerous holes in that particular possible story. So you, you get these claims, but there's no, there's just no way for the athlete to, to verify those. I mean, you'd have to have, you'd have to have an athlete who could live the life like on the Truman Show. You remember that movie, where every single thing the athlete does is recorded and filmed for weeks and weeks and weeks in advance to say, hang on, hang on, play that back a bit. Oh wait, I just drank a glass of water from a restaurant, and maybe that's where it was from. You know, it's impossible for them to show. So I do yeah. feel, I do feel a, a degree of sympathy, but I, I also. It's that old thing, right? Is it better to catch one innocent and than it is to well, hang on, how does that saying go? Catch one innocent person or let ninety nine guilty go free? Well, I know the answer to that. Yes. Ninety nine go free. Yeah, they so say the problem is anti doping would fail if that was the way they did it. Yeah. Almost entirely. Yeah. Yeah, but the impact on somebody that's mm. innocent. I hear you, I hear yeah. you. It's hell of a tricky. I mean, if you're if you're a falsely accused of murder and you get 
you know, and you're based in Texas and you get put to death because you've not, and you're not, wow. a, I mean, that's the, that's, wow. the th that's the basis of legal law. Around and, 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 world. and that's actually interesting. And I know we cut Gareth also, I want to come back to him in a moment. It's interesting there because the balance of probability that you need, the, the, the standard of proof, sorry, yeah. to send someone to the death to death penalty yeah. has to be so high. In these, in these cases, it's balance of probability. So if you read like, for instance, the Houlihan case, they're basically looking to see whether her story is more likely than it is not, and they decided it wasn't. To yeah, to, to prove to prove it to that standard of death penalty or prison and so on would raise the stake the standard of evidence you need so high, which is why, by the way, that prison sentences for doping offences and lifetime bans become actually not really tenable because the at the moment the doping system creaks under the weight of legal arguments. Imagine you made it standard higher; no one would ever be able to get sanctioned. So there's that as well. I, yeah. Gareth, I cut you off there. No, I was only going to say, um, I was just reading because it was it was posted. We were talking about um, where it could have been contaminated from because he's saying it must be contamination. Uh, and he says he only takes vitamin D and cod cod liver oil. Um, so he hasn't even really got many things he can you know, sort of go back and say, well, it could have been this supplement, even if he was keeping batch numbers. But until I looked into this, I wasn't aware that there were actually uh, stores online or wherever that could almost guarantee that they've got drug-free products. So for professional athletes, mm. and, and again, this might come down to the education thing where people in the trail running world don't realize that if you're just buying off the shelf in a store, these products are made alongside other products in a factory somewhere uh, and, and have a higher risk of contamination. So I wasn't even aware that that, that was a thing. Um, but it must be, as an athlete, uh, incredibly difficult to monitor mm. or, or just eating from day Impossible. to day it must be difficult. Mm. Um, and and then finally, it's a point. Um, I, I was thinking about how they could sort of bring this intro to trail running. And again, Corinne Matt, uh, Malcolm, it was a, I forget the name uh, of the, the podcast I was listening to her on. She reckons it would cost about, because she's looking at it, cost about half a million dollars a year to set up and run just a small testing pool in America for that. So there's obviously going to be massive funding issues. Um, and this in discourse, this uh, topic turned into a debate about possibly his future uh, and the the future of trail and ultra running as far as drug testing goes and is it going to be much more of a problem in that sphere and we're talking about prize money because as the prize money goes i think he got just over ten thousand dollars for occ which isn't a huge amount but if you're counting sponsorship and everything else i'm sure he's as a professional athlete or he was um, because obviously he's lost his livelihood it's not just you know it's not just the doping ban mm, mm. um whether the prize when the prize money rises then these things are going to have to be looked at. Last one. Do, do you remember Daryl Impey's doping excuse? Yeah, it's a farm and cyclist, yeah. So he went to a pharmacy to get bicarbonate and he was rolling his own, well, a pharmacist was producing his own bicarbonate pills and it allegedly handled some banned substance just before handling the bicarbonate pills. So he would have said, I took every step. I went to a credited pharmacy. There should have been no risk of, a, <laughs> of any kind of contamination. And yet I got it. And he obviously got the pharmacist to agree and say that. Otherwise, he wouldn't have gotten away with it. So that was the only example I can think of of a, of a medical product. His was also a diuretic, I think, from memory. Mm -hmm. That's the only example I can think of when athletes managed to pull off like a, a, a contaminant outside of a supplement type thing. You know, it was, it was, it was a bizarre. Yeah. But yeah, you know, it, it, it can happen. And then it makes you realize that 
maybe you're yeah maybe you're punishing an innocent person but yeah then at the same time you look at all the cases where it's not an innocent person you am i going to let them go too properly <laughs> difficult hey we're talking about some it's a really real philosophically difficult say, things on this one so many of these discussions today millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from noom like evan who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds salads generally for most people are the easy button right for me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey. Stay tuned for more. Right, so on to our final uh, news topic, and there are many more topics on our discourse channel if uh, you haven't already got that message uh, that we can't get to today. And trust me, over the next couple of weeks, I'm sure there'll be many more too. So we can't get to absolutely everything. I know Gareth is keeping an eye on giving us some of the highlights, but one of the ones that really did kind of uh, spark some interest was this decision by Parkrun to remove some of the records from the Parkrun website. Now, the focus has been on people who do the most first places, sub-17 men, sub-20-minute uh, women on park runs. And when I looked at this initially, I thought, well, I kind of agree with that because that's one of the the decision that was made. It was actually released in a statement by a woman called Kirsty, who was the head of communications. I don't give her first name, but this was officially on the park run site. And, we, and it says here that the um, – just going to get down to it – that what was clear is that there was a disconnect between the performance data displayed so prominently on the site and our mission to create opportunities for as many people as possible to take part in parkrun events, especially those who are anxious about activities such as parkrun, but who potentially have an enormous amount to gain. So in summary, and I kind of see this point here, parkrun is a community run. It's not designed to be who is the fastest and who wins. It's around people just participating together. But there's another angle, Ross, which has kind of been doing the rounds and it there's a theory about why they've made this decision yeah so and we're gonna to try and explain this we're gonna have to do some history uh the there has been a lot of pressure on the park run in the last year or two because they allow you to enter into the women's category on the basis of gender not sex so the consequence is that number of those lists that you just referred to the best performances the fastest time of the week the number of sub 20 minute performances for women and in fact even the age grading performance you know where you'll come uh, 15th in your local park run but you'll get a an email later telling you which percentile rank you were those rankings were then being affected by the fact that and this is the the trans woman debate effectively that there are biological males who identify as women in the category with you. And so people took that up. Mario Yamauchi, the commentator from the BBC, former elite marathon runner, um, Olympian. She is probably the recognized most vocal person who's been taking that battle up on behalf of women saying that this is not fair, which it wasn't. And so they changed it a couple of weeks back now, or just under two weeks ago. And came out with that statement and the CEO uh, published a statement in which he said the same thing is that this was always in the works and so forth. But it looks very much like it's a reaction to the pressure they've got because the the dismissal of Mari Yamauchi and others' claims is the basis that, hey, it's a fun run. It's just a ma- the, the, the results don't matter. 
And then Mara and Co were saying, but hang on, you say the results don't matter, but look at this. You actually give awards. You talk about performance rankings. You talk about leaderboards. You talk about records. So clearly they do. And so there is this perception that they've done it for that reason. They're trying to argue the opposite. I'd like to know what Gareth's view is on whether that the the, the appeals they're making, that it's uh, something other than the trance issue, ring true, or whether you think that it was a trance thing that's motivated it. Um, uh I think they've painted themselves into a bit of a corner on this one because they've removed the records from their websites. They've removed the top end records, but they still send in the emails out uh, at the end of your participation, which still gives you uh, grading by age and gender, etc. So I think they're saying that they want this, everything to become more inclusive because of the, um, so it doesn't, this, uh, discourage people from doing it because they don't want to see, it wants to be an inclusive event but yet they're still giving the people saying okay you came 499th out of 500 why give that data why strip the top end data and then still go the other data so why not just give perhaps their time or why not give a time because if they're saying it's just purely for exercise it's not competitive at all why, why give out any data at all this could say everybody's got to watch well that's not necessarily the case not everybody has got watches um so they, they've put themselves into a bit of a corner on that one um they, they either i don't see the problem with them having the leaderboards to be honest with you um it, it's not in my mind being a problem for so long and then the, the trans the transgender debate is obviously behind it i think to my own personal mind although they haven't said it themselves so I think Ross put a good post. As I said to him about, uh, I said, so if they remove the timing, how important is timing to everybody? And I think it's incredibly important, actually, that they do have some sort of uh, way of recognizing people's own improvements. Because otherwise, as Ross said, I think it's a, it just comes a coincidental gathering of people running in the same direction without that sort of element, which I think is exactly right. But what Ross also does is that people, if they see progress in their times, then they're more likely to go out and train. And so it doesn't just become a more once a, a week event. It becomes yeah. a part of their lives and it builds fitness, which is exactly what Park Run was meant to do. It was meant like Couch to 5K, get people up and exercising, and and forget about the top end of it and everything, because who goes and looks at those leaderboards anyway? Only the people who are up there in the first place. I don't think people who are just your average park runner really care about the, the, the what the, the top records are. So was it doing any harm? No, I don't think so. Yeah, I partly agree with Gareth on that. I, the part I agree with is the fact that getting your email with your results and where you finished is an encouragement. Hmm, it's value. There's value in it. It's it creates value. meaning. Yeah. Creates meaning. But I don't necessarily agree that having the top ranking athletes on a website actually, because it, what it does, it gives the wrong impression about what part run is about. As you just said, it's a community based thing. It's about me competing potentially against myself and maybe my mate who's behind me, but that's about it. Um, so having those leaderboards, it should almost be like those leaderboards should be the person who's done the most park runs, not the person that's done the fastest. Yeah, that's so, one I think that counts the most. Yeah, and and I, I think there's two, there's a there's a BC and an AC before the change, after the change debate here, which I think is important to recognise. But I did just want to read to you. There's a there's a Twitter follow at Gloss which 
Victoria Smith, who's actually written a piece on this issue, uh, which I think is really very good. I'll refer to it in a moment. But she, she's a park runner and says, yes, I know my figures aren't amazing, but this doesn't mean I'm just competing at myself. Last time I did park run, I came 171st out of 571, but 27th out of 213 females. The latter figure actually means something to me as a middle-aged, not very sporty person who's hated her body for most of her life, even if there's no prize. Everyone runs together. There aren't separate races, just scoring categories. And so the, the point I want to make is I learned really early on in this trans debate that you should not tell other people where they should find their meaning in sport because yes. it happened like it happens all the time. It happened two years ago. We were debating Leah Thomas swimming in the NCAA and winning those NCAA titles. And I lost track of the number of people who would come on social media and tell me and others, why are you getting all upset about this? It's just sport. Okay. It's just sport to you because you don't care. But there are a lot of people who care a great deal about sports. And in fact, it's a profession. You wouldn't go to someone and say, it's just medicine. It's just accounting. If they were losing their jobs as a consequence of something. Mm -hmm. But you can you think you can do it for sport because to you, it's a bit of fun. So I, I learned very quickly, don't impose your value system and your meaning system on other people, especially when women are saying, this means something to me. And then men come along and say, it shouldn't. No. <laughs> so the first point is like, I would put a hard full stop there and say, just stop. Now there is a, there is an element of this that I think has like lost the run of itself where a lot of people are clambering onto this and they are actually weaponizing it for like actually bigotry and animosity and so on, which I, I do honestly, I find like a little bit unpleasant, but fundamentally there still is an issue that if you are publishing records and lists and rankings and performances, they should at least be fair. Imagine in the age categories, it's the same thing, right? If, if they're going to give out like, here's our best under 16s, under 18s, you should at least have to declare yourself to be that age in order to be on that list. And when Parkrun was allowing people to declare by identity and not biology, they were violating fairness, not for everyone, but for one very specific group of people. And yes, the consequences of that violation are not the same as the consequences when you have your Olympic birth, attendance at the Olympics, Olympic final, Olympic medal, Olympic gold, pick, take your pick, taken away from you. In the same way that if I'm, if I'm in Barcelona and I get pickpocketed, all I lose is a phone. If I'm in South Africa, I might have get hijacked and all I lose is a car. <laughs> Those two things are quantitatively different levels of loss, but they are both crimes. So that's, that's how I'd see this is, yes, by scale, what is being taken away from women is way smaller than what's being taken away from an athlete at the Olympic Games or NCAA championships. But that doesn't make it not unfair. It just means it's the, the unfairness produces a different outcome. So, that's, so, so to me, that's really important to understand. Now, when Parkrun was publishing its top lists, it's under 17 uh, minutes, it's under 20s, and it's rankings, fastest time ever. It was very clearly prioritizing and valuing performances relative to others. When they make this change, they have scaled that back. So where they are now is more coherent than it was before. Would you agree? It's also more in line with their philosophy. Correct. That's that's what I mean by coherence. It's in line. Like they, they say we stand for this, therefore we're going to recognize yeah. this. I, I still think like Victoria Smith, she finds value in where she ranked within her own community. Like for her, it's an important thing. I'm not going to begrudge her that, but I think, I think they've taken a step that can be viewed as progressive. But what I think that step then revealed is that a lot of men got unhappy because they said, I want to know my ranking. Why must I lose out because of the trans debate? Well, yeah, now it matters to you. It matters to you because you're losing yours. 
Whereas when women were losing theirs, you said it's no big deal. So, so, so the, <laughs> the interesting thing that happened when Parkrun announced this change is that it actually brought a lot of people who made you realize that actually Parkrun does matter as a competitive entity. People did care. Maybe not all of them, but they did. So why should we then say to the woman, you shouldn't have bothered by it because it's just a parkrun? Yeah, I, I kind of, I don't believe that. I think that if the focus changes from people understanding what parkrun was originally about, as Gareth has suggested, that it was a participatory so, community-based thing. It's like when you go on community rides on Zwift. It's always, right. You even have a curtain on a Zwift ride, which stops faster riders from riding ahead of the group, which forces people to ride along at the same time. And you know the game. You come on there. You know yeah, the yeah, yeah, yeah. So, Hotrun is about that. So I don't think that getting a mail about where you finish, I think is important. But I honestly don't think that it is because it's not competitive enough and there's nothing really in terms of prize money involved. There's maybe prestige. Does it matter that there's a small group of potential trans athletes that might be one position ahead of I, you? I don't I, know. I think it matters in concept. And it's the solution to it is that Parkrun should just allow you to enter as a homo sapien. <laughs> like, like that should be the only category you select. Maybe you can select dog and then you can go there and you can run with, with um, doodles, the Labrador, and you can run as a human being. But if you, if you say you're going to enter and you're going to identify yourself as belonging to a category, and then you're going to actually measure performance and assess it within category, then at the very least make it fair. Gareth is gagging to say yeah. something. I, 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 I'm, Gagging to say something. Uh, actually, this is from one of our, our discourse members, which is Steve, who was actually a race director for Parkrun. So um, I think it's quite relevant. And he thinks it's the right way to go for Parkrun. They're going back to their core reasons, which I was saying is about getting people off. Um, he says, you can't get away from the fact that a lot of keen, fast, competitive runners use Parkrun as a free 5K event with never, with many never giving back by volunteering. Um and it says, your parkrun performances are including in the Run Britain rankings, which I wasn't aware of, um, and on Power of 10, which drives competitive runners to trawl the records looking for the fastest events to get best times at. Now, that's a bit of an eye-opener because that's going so far away from the ethos of parkrun mm. that people are actually going to different parkruns so they can run a faster time because it's a faster course. Then it's totally out of what it was designed to do. So, um, yeah. I'm probably, I'm quite glad actually I'm not on Instagram or Twitter because I probably get a lot of responses from the fast runners, but they're obviously not using it as a vehicle. Go and organize your own 5k race. And I was also thinking mm. this data that obviously, um, Parker and have held, is it a compromise that they could, um, either anonymize it or actually that would, that would be pointless, um, I suppose, cause you wouldn't have names on it. Um, but Perhaps all these fast runners who are so desperate to see themselves on the uh, on the scoreboards, on the leaderboards, which is an ego-driven thing, just like running a race as fast as you can. Um, why don't they just create a new Facebook group or a new website where they can all submit their emails and they get scraped for the data and they can have their own um, leaderboards? There are ways around it, but they probably don't mm. want to because who else is going to look at that? They want to see themselves, as you say, on, on top of the the, the parkrun page yeah. so uh but that's a race director anyway he's obviously thinking that it's moving the right way so that's from inside so i thought i'd uh, and I, at his last notice i think things will calm down so. i think they will and i think they have moved it in a direction that diffuses much of the tension because the tension arises as i was saying because you have allowed people to identify into categories and then you're going to report and and value results within category 
And if you do that and you fail to defend the boundary around categories, then you've undermined the performance side of it. So there's only two solutions to that problem. You either get rid of the categories or you get rid of the performances. And they've chosen the latter. So what they now effectively will have is no longer reporting these category violations because there isn't such a thing anymore. It won't stop people from finding them, but I think those people who were then pointing out all these incoherences or things that weren't in line have actually been to some extent disempowered a little bit. So in that regard, as I say, the park run change is now for the first time closer to coherence than it was. And that should probably be seen as progressive. Like it's it's a it's it's a good change. I'm not disagreeing with it. But I just think that there is a side of this debate that has basically said it shouldn't matter to you because it's not a performance thing. And there's, whilst probably a relatively small proportion, there are people for whom it does matter and to whom it does matter. And I long ago learned that you don't go and tell people what they should and shouldn't value. <laughs> and again, I, I I believe that women are saying this not because it's the park run that matters, because it, rather that it is symbolic of something else that they are experiencing. W women feel that they are being denied fairness and sporting integrity in this. And that in itself is probably the symptom of a larger problem. It's not a scientific one, so I don't go down it. And I'm also not a woman, so I don't get to talk about it. But when they speak, I'm listening. And they're yeah. saying that this is a problem. And parkrun is one manifestation of this. There are others that are actually far more serious than even sport. But it's one of many, and they've they've said it's valuable. And that's the point that that Glosswitch was making in this article, is stop telling us where we should fight our battles. Why do you yeah. think Parkrun haven't actually come out and, and said this is partially due to the transgender debate? Because wouldn't it have been better for them to, well, if that is the case, or perhaps it's not, but it seems uh, to be. Yeah. Um, because it'll feel that they're bowing to pressure and there's a little bit of pride in that maybe. But if that pressure's in the right place uh, on on, support, on equality, I mean, your three yeah, tenets, you said, of, of this debate are... Um, was it safety, uh, inclusion, and, yeah. and fairness and inclusion? Well, safety doesn't matter in this case. It's not a contact no. sport. So you look no. at fairness and inclusion, and because they can't test for testosterone or whatever, or you know, um, then they can't, they can't really look at fairness, can they? And they're yeah, pretty, so they're, they're pretty yeah. stumped on inclusion, to be honest with you, all three. So, so they could, open, yeah. Come, so they could come open. out with a statement. They could come out with a statement that says, "We have heard the voices of a number of people." And we also recognize or believe that the inclusion of Parkrun, the fact that we've created a community is our core value. It's our, it's our fundamental offering to people is a safe community for them to compete in. And because of that, we recognize that we can no longer promote, advertise and celebrate achievement and performance, but rather we just want everyone to run and we'll celebrate a different element of performance, not the time. Yeah. So they've done that. Yes, and if I if I was Kirsty, the, the the communications what is she communications head of communications at Parkrun, I would have done exactly the same thing because she doesn't have to actually get involved in the chance debate at all. She can justify the decision based on the fact that that's not well. That's what they've done exactly. Yeah. exactly. Yeah. And I, I would have done exactly the same thing. There's no yeah. reason to embroil themselves in a controversy if there is one at all, and if the reason for the decision was that we will probably never know. We can draw conclusions about the timing of it but it doesn't necessarily mean that it is the real truth. I don't think, but anyway, well, we can debate that. Yeah. <laughs> and we have. Yeah. Anyway, it became a, became a battleground. Honestly, not one that I really wanted to wade into because 
because I think there are philosophical arguments and so on to be made there that are a little bit different from discussing whether you should have an Olympic Games that allows males to identify into women's sport, you know, for the reasons we've discussed. So I think it's really interesting, but I just think it's probably if if it was the only thing happening, it would be blown out of proportion, but it's not. Yeah. It's one element of a of a cultural argument that's going on at the moment and because it's patently unfair to not have a, a women's category when sport matters, outcome matters, parkrun failed, they're now, long, they're now failing less, I would say. Yeah. So we'll see what happens next. Anyway, we've had a long episode today. And for those of you that uh, have been part of our discussion today, you'll see there's lots of different topics that we've touched on. There are many more discussions happening on our Discourse channel. And if you haven't uh, heard already, you can get onto our Discourse channel by following us and supporting us on patreon.com. Look for the Science of Sport podcast. And then by making a small donation, you then get free access to our Discourse channel where there is many big, heavy discussions happening, many of which we have discussed today. Big thank you to Gareth. Davies, who is looking after our discourse channel and has been very involved in that. Of course, Professor Ross Tucker, who is here and giving us the, the advice that we all love to hear. Uh, but for now, it's a goodbye. You have been listening to the Science of Sport podcast. Follow us on X, Facebook, Instagram, and join the conversation on our exclusive Science of Sport Patreon page. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. 